Hi, I'm Chloe Canning. Ruminate Leadership acknowledges the traditional custodians on the land which we recall this podcast, the Terrible and Yogara people. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Lead with Courage, the podcast that celebrates the bold and inspiring stories of leaders making a difference. We're your hosts, Andy and Cherie Canning, and together we'll dive into the minds of the trailblazers, the risk takers, and those who embrace life with a growth mindset. On today's episode of Lead with Courage, we welcome Carlo Novak. Carlo is a franchisee owner of Studio Pilates Bell Reeve in Tasmania, and his story as a business owner is a really interesting and passionate one. What comes before that also drives so many of the choices that Carlo makes in his business, and that is nine years of being an infantry soldier for the Australian Army and seven years as a paramedic. In this conversation, we do go pretty deep, and I will just mention that we are discussing mental health, suicide, and some really deep conversations, also talking about post-traumatic growth and the experiences that Carlo went through to get to where he is today. This conversation is quite a moving one and we are so grateful that Carlo has so openly shared and been so vulnerable and real with us about his experiences. We hope you enjoy this conversation and find a lot of inspiration from it. Welcome, Carlo. Carlo Novak, it's such a pleasure to have you here with us today. I know you're in beautiful Tassie and we're up in sunny Queensland at the moment. Um, And it's such an honour to have you here. I, I remember when Cherie first met you in Queenstown at a Studio Pilates conference uh, back in March this year. It was even before I think we talked about the idea of introducing a podcast as part of Luminate. And I don't don't even know if we were settled on a name, but it was very much like I met this guy. His name is Carlo. He's from Studio Pilates. He He used to be in the military. He's been to war. He's seen some things and he just has the ultimate growth mindset and we have to have him on the podcast. If ever we're going to do a podcast, it's going to be for someone like to have Carlo on and showcase his story. So, um, so excited to have you here today. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh man, as I said to you guys earlier, thank you so much for having me here. I'm so humbled to be here um, and you guys are beautiful human beings. So yeah, happy to have a chat, jam out and and go from there. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So great. Thanks, Carlo. Uh, We just want to jump in. I think the first question we ask every time uh, to any guest is what does lead with courage mean to you? Leading with courage. So it's, I've always loved you know, leading by example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That has changed though. The, if you really delve deep into that leading by example, because um, leading by example back in the day for me was like, yeah, push hard, drive through, push through the pain. And that, that was great. And, and um, you know, my place of working in the military, um, but that started not really serving me the best. And then I realized now looking back, you always have hindsight 2020 when you're looking back. Right. Um, Thank you. I was like, yeah, sometimes I was like, Oh, that probably wasn't the best example, but that was a part of my journey and learning and growing and realizing like just, just because you're pushing when you probably shouldn't, doesn't mean it's the best thing, but yeah, leading by example these days. Is, yeah. It's always striving to do the very best I can, inspiring those around me. Um, but also, you know, boasting in the weakness of like if I'm feeling down and flattened out or anything, to then just be honest with myself, um, be honest with my family, and then anyone 
that's around that to show like it's okay sometimes when you know to fail and stumble and fall um yeah because i think that back in the day it used to almost appear as a facade of yes. like oh man just going from strength to strength no non-stop it's like superhuman not like that man you know the struggles mm. and everything that i had behind the scenes that i would not like i'd hide away you know i wouldn't show anyone that side um yeah so that's it. it's leading by example yeah yeah beautiful and um you know with your permission and your generosity we'd love to go into a little bit of that background because you've Right now with your wife, you guys are owning Studio Pilates franchise in, in Tasmania, Bell Reef, yep. Bell Reef. That's okay. good. You yeah, got it. good. Um, it. And you and your beautiful family creating that community down there. And yep. that in itself is a podcast episode and a great conversation. Um, and also I think what's led you to this point and, you know, the experiences and the story of Carlo so far and um, you've had you'd led a few different lives, I suppose you could say, in the different careers that you've had. And um, do you want to just take us back, I guess, maybe give us a little bit of who is Carlo um, and and where have you been in your career? And then we can jump into some of those pieces. Well, I'm a country boy at heart. I'm born and bred in Mount Isa in Queensland. Um, Beautiful mum and dad. Uh, Mum's still there till today. Uh, my father passed away a couple of years ago. Um, he is, he had a battle with cancer. He lasted seven years battling cancer before he um, f- finished with that. But again, <sighs> that's a whole other part to the story, which was a beautiful healing in our family. Um, but uh, yeah, grew up there and was part of an era where swimming transformed when it came to people that were in like you know remote or isolated areas. I had the privilege of being coached in swimming by the late, great um, Rodney Wolf. Uh, that man was like another father figure to me, just such an inspiring man. Um, talk about someone that led by example. Um, he was a very accomplished swimmer and um, uh, footy player in his own right. Uh, yeah, swimming, I, I swam from nine years old in club and then uh, tried my hand going professional for a year and a half, but nearly two years in total by the time I'd wound things up. Um, could not make it in Australia. I was in the golden era of swimming. So we had like right. you know, Kieran Perkins, Susie O'Neill. Um, the list goes on and on. Jade Winter himself, who I have the privilege of working alongside in Studio Pilates now. Um, and so with my heritage being half Filipino, half German, I um, went over the Philippines, tried to give, uh, give it a crack to make the Filipino swim team for the Olympics. That wasn't meant to be. Got sick um, three weeks out from the um, actual trials, the Olympic oh, trials. No. Uh, oh, no. Yeah, it was meant to be. Like, I got it. <laughs> it was my first time living away from home and abroad. Um, and I was drinking the water and everything, like living like a local. And I got an amoeba from the water s- system. So that's oh, like no. a micro microorganism. Yeah, that flattened me out. And I thought it was just the stress and everything of the training as I was tapering, getting ready for the um, trials. Um, but yeah, I lost a lot of weight in a short period of time and it blew the taper out. But, um, that's when the old man on the phone, he said, that's it. You've mucked around enough. now. <laughs> time to come home and figure out what you're going to do. And, uh, when I came home, the, the pathways were to either go down, uh, go to uni, uh, in Townsville or yeah, but, but I had other ideas. I, I'd had it in my mind for the military for quite some time. I'd seen a few older blokes in, in um, my hometown that were really inspiring blokes, you know, and I was like, wow, how, you know, some of them were like uh, right into their grunge music, long hair and everything. And then they went to the military, came back, these 
like just in appearance, just men, you know, wearing their uniforms and speaking to us at school um, about what the military had done for them, giving them structure and stability, grounding in life. And that was, that was the final sort of seal in the deal. So I pursued that pathway um, and then, yeah, got into the military, served in the infantry for um, eight and a half years in total full time. And um, yeah, did multiple tours during that time. And I, again, started getting certain dreams. I was getting dreams of, um, yeah, my death actually. So, um, and it was a recurring dream and it was this dream where I was dying in this glorious gun battle. And um, the dream would always then finish with me going, I, I could have that path and I'd be remembered or I could leave and then have another path of yeah, living life. And uh, wow. it's always crazy to talk about that. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, cause I'd, I'd already come to terms with the risk um, that I could lose my life. You know, we were going on tours, combat, combat deployments. Um, there was a real threat there. Um, and now looking back again, I, I know that I definitely had a piece about like, Hey, I'm going to go down. I'll go down fighting and mm. with my brothers on my side. Um, but no, I'm very, very thankful. I went down the other path, <laughs> ended up discharging um, and then tried my hand in the frontline services because I thought I want to experience what life is like in Australia. Mm-hmm. And so that's where then I, um, I loved the medical side of things because in infantry, depending on what pathway you go, I, had, I got trained in advanced combat first aid. Um, where we could get do intravenous access, um, you know, yeah, do a little bit more advanced um, interventions to sustain life until they could get, uh, uh, you know, the injured casualty could get to definitive, more definitive care. And uh, you used to use mnemonics. So when you'd be finishing up with a patient, you know, and going through the training, then you'd say document and evac was the final process. So document everything you found. But I used to say it really quick and go, doc and evac. And some of the uh, bosses used to be like, oh, Dr. Novak. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah, premonition. So, yeah, premonition. But um, anyway, I ended up pursuing a career as a paramedic. Um, and yeah, didn't get in initially. Um, and when I asked for feedback, they said, "Oh, I had to push a little bit there with the HR team because they said you, you know they don't normally give feedback." Um, but the girl then just said, oh, "Look, we've never heard from you. Um, it's the first time we've ever seen an application from you." Um, but just try again in 12 months. So I used that time to um, travel for a bit to Europe um, with my uh, partner at the time and then uh, got a job doing um, general labouring, uh, you know, just to tick finances over. Yeah, tried my hand even at retail. I thought, oh, I want to do something where I don't have to, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to work Stress in a clothes free. shop. Stress-free, yeah. Stress-free, just dealing with people. You know, um, yeah, um, so I did a few different things here and there, working in an engineering company as a general tradesman, and then the next year um, the applications opened, put the exact same application in because it was the same criteria and everything that they wanted, and I uh, just changed the dates, changed my address, and lo and behold, I got in. So that kicked off my journey um, becoming a paramedic. Um, but, yeah, that seven years of doing that um, before I hit a wall, and I hit a wall through that career, I started hitting walls physically and then bit by bit, the cracks started showing too um, psychologically. Um, yeah, so that was that was really dark times and it led, led me down a really dark path there. Yeah. That's your paramedic times? 
That was a paramedic time. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And so I officially uh, will finish things up there at the end of 2018. Oh, no, sorry, 2017. Mm-hmm. Getting my dates correct. Um, yeah, so end of 2017 is when I finished up officially um, with the paramedics up in Darwin and the Northern Territory. Um, I recall you telling me a statistic about delivering babies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so in the paramedics, like any workplace, luck of the draw, um, yeah, they, uh, I got a moniker pretty early on in my career. Uh, I don't want to swear. They, they called me an S magnet. Yeah. <laughs> I was really attracting, you name the job. <laughs> I see. I kept on just being the one to get it. I it even got to the point where I had, um, paramedic mentors with me because you start off as a trainee, you're studying at the same time, full time, as well as working on road as a trainee paramedic. And I would get some of them rocking up on the shift and going, oh, man, I thought I was going to have a quiet shift. And, yeah, we would just get these hectic jobs. And, uh, yeah, I ended up finishing up delivering a total of eight babies throughout my career in the course of seven years. Um, They were beautiful but far out. They definitely made you flex your clinical knowledge and skills. Um, Yeah, and uh, one of the best ones, it was actually one of the – one of the very last jobs that I'd completed, I was a station officer by that stage. So I was one of the managers on road, managing the crews. Um, and, uh, yeah, we had a woman in labor at home and, uh, it, and it was reported as a breach birth, which is extremely dangerous. You know, you don't have those, um, outside um, you know, factors involved when it comes to being in definitive care. And uh, a lot of the times it can be misreported, but when I arrived on scene, because there were no crews available um, to back up and I was single um, response, um, yeah, it was definitely a breach birth. And um, yeah, the woman, she was just incredible. You know, the strength that she had and the courage that she showed. Um, and the majority was just hands off, but um, it became the um, first out of hospital breach delivery in 10 years. So that made the record books up in Darwin, Northern Territory, um, private hospital or the hospital up there in the maternity ward. Yeah. So that was Legend. a really cool experience. Yeah. Legend. I remember you saying to me that maybe there's so many paramedics that actually haven't even delivered a baby. Like it's not that common. So baby number five, which ended up being quite a complex case, the paramedic I was working with, he um, had never delivered a baby. And by that stage, he was at, I think, 20 or 21 years in his career. Wow. Never deliver a baby. And so it was at two o'clock in the morning or thereabouts and um, we got the page and it wasn't far from the station, but we were working at in Palmerston. And uh, he said, mate, 20 years, never delivered a baby. This will be not load and go. I said, well, just, I've delivered four in my career already, mate, in a short <laughs> period of time. I don't know about the odds here. Let's see if it balances out. And um, yeah, that ended up being quite a complex case. Um where she'd had early separation of the um, the placenta and then it was a rapid delivery and we ended up having two casualty, like not casualty, but two severely ill patients. So the baby wasn't breathing upon delivery. And um, when we did the initial assessment, yeah, so we had to do some, um, you know, um, yeah, manual uh, sternal rubs and then she started having to do a, a resus, what we call a dry resus of the baby. Um, to get the baby breathing. And then uh, because it was so um, early, it was 27 weeks gestation. Oh, yeah, my goodness. 27, 40 weeks is a standard gestation yeah. for uh, yeah, nine months. And um, 
And the lady, when she delivered, had a massive postpartum hemorrhage. So she oh was bleeding God. out. Um, so we had to then manage her bleeding. That was really difficult to control because she also had a history um, in a previous birth of a grade three tear. So that occurred again. Um, but it was the best feeling when we pulled into the ramp and then got the bub out and then Bubby started breathing on its own. Um, and the woman was, had been praying actually at that time too. And, uh, yeah, I didn't have my faith in my life at that stage, but, um, I really could feel a presence, um, you know, during that job, it was amazing. Um, and, uh, anyway, two years later, got to, um, I was standing in a cafe and I had two student paramedics with me that I'd been, I was mentoring on road at the time. And I had an African gentleman with his little son there and, he came and grabbed me and he said, excuse me, uh, you were the paramedic that delivered my son two years ago. And, uh, yeah. And he goes, as you can see, he's a healthy boy. And I was like, far out. This is, yeah. So that was awesome. Oh, oh the goosebumps, Carlo. Like, oh, phenomenal. Phenomenal. Did you yeah. have any full circle moments like that during your time as a paramedic where, you know, it, it, you almost see life and death straight in front of you, but maybe it's separated by time. One of them actually were to see the uh, the flow-on effect in some in not the best way. So we had a case where a young boy had, it was on school holidays and it was at a college and it was St. John's College and we got called out and I was the primary treating officer. I hadn't, I hadn't got to the stage of being fully qualified. I was just on the cusp. Um, of being a fully qualified paramedic. Anyway, we arrived on scene and the boy was in complete cardiac arrest. He had his teachers that were the duty teachers at the school doing um, CPR. Uh, anyway, and it was a really complex case as well because he had a distended abdo. He was bleeding profusely from the mouth. So we did, it was really confusing and he was in complete what's called a systole, so flatlined. Um, we worked. The normal protocol is you continue a resus and if there's no output, 20 minutes back then was what you'd work to. And then if there's nil signs compatible with life, then it, when it's agreed uh, by all clinicians on scene, you cease. But if there's one person, at least one person that disagrees or wants to continue, then that's where then you'll continue. And again, I had this wash over me. Everyone was looking at one another and then, you know, we had to clear the room out to begin with because there was a lot of kids in there as well. These classmates, um, and just to control the scene, but something compelled me that no man, this is something here with I think this this boy is viable. Um, so we made the decision to then load into the um, ambulance and then get him to definitive care. So we um, did that, got him to the hospital. Boom! As soon as we got him into the resuscitation room, and he had no output by the time we got there. It was nearly over forty minutes. He had output instantly. And it was incredible. But then the journey started to then see if the boy would have brain damage from being, you know, hypoxic for that long, like lack of oxygen for the brain. So full circle wise, we found out that, that it was found out later that the young boy, he had a congenital heart defect that had never been picked up. Um, they ended up putting a pacemaker, but the miracle was he had no neurological deficits whatsoever. Wow. Um, yeah, and a couple of years later, we found out that he was still because he sent a letter to the ambulance service thanking all of the crews that were involved, um, and uh, it was from his family and behalf of the family too for um, helping to save his life. 
Um, and so that was so beautiful. But the negative flow on was some of those teachers that had been involved and were accredited to saving that young boy's life because that's what saved lives, early early CPR, early defibrillation. And, um, yeah, to go to those some of those teachers who had tried to take their own life as a result of the PTSD that they'd sustained from that case. So, you know, it was a real contrast, this beautiful outcome, but then to then, you know, witness yeah the hardships that can come from that and uh yeah yeah wow 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 oh, i think yeah Sorry, I, know, I look honestly i get a little choked up again i don't talk about these stories that often um and i'm very thankful actually that i'm i'm a <laughs> i'm at a place in life i'm emotionally connected because <laughs> i got to a place where i wasn't yeah oh carlo I just want to just keep saying thank you because the generosity to share this and to tap back into that for yourself and to feel that emotion like that, that's courage all over, isn't it? And it's just the word that keeps coming up for me. It's just so generous. So thank you. Thank you. Oh, man, I felt so privileged that I got to do those jobs and um, yeah, I got exactly what I, what I wanted in life because my prayers as a young boy, when I had my faith growing up, um, were very specific as well. Like, um, yeah, I, I used to pray when I was a boy, um, going to church. Um, I want to be a, a good man in life. Um, yeah. Well, I don't know you that well, Carlo, but I think that is absolutely what you are without a doubt, without a doubt. Incredible man, incredible father. It's- and Yeah. And it's, and it's tricky, it's tricky, um, I, I don't know about you, but I've always found it tricky to define for yourself what a good man is. You know, it's yeah. it's a lot easier to kind of look from the outside, you know, looking in and being mm-hmm. like, oh, there's a good man because I, I sit here in front of you, albeit separated on Zoom, but I look at you and I'm like, that's a good man, you know, because <laughs> like the integrity shines through, your authenticity shines through, but sometimes it can be really I think difficult to treat that to ourselves and be and and look at there and being like I am a good man and you you mentioned I wonder whether you'd kind of enlighten us a little you mentioned before that there were times where you'd you know kind of maybe lost touch or lost feeling with those things and even if we could even if we could go to those teachers you talked about you know who who were dealing with some, some fairly significant trauma of seeing a student go into cardiac arrest what what prompts them like in your experience to go down that track of feeling like they need to, you know, kind of exit this world and take their own life, you know, in those moments, I wonder, do you have something that you could share in terms of that, that, that would kind of lead them down that track after seeing something so traumatic? Yeah. Well, look, everyone has a different journey. We all process things differently, but, Uh, I can only speak about what got me to a place of that sort of level of darkness. Mm. We don't know what was the precursors leading up to them finally keeping over the edge, but that's to me what it comes to. It comes to a tipping point. You know, we all have a tipping point. We can only, uh, a human mind and body can only take so much. That's why we're human. We're not God, Mm. you know? Um, And that's where, Late after the fact, I could then relate because at the time I was thinking, you know, I showed genuine compassion and understanding and care, but I also internally, I know I had that mindset of like, yeah, how could this affect you? 
but that's because I hadn't walked that journey yet. I hadn't, you know, that's why you don't know what someone's walking through. We can mm. only try our very best to then try and attempt to um, simulate what it would be like to walk in someone else's shoes. But mm. yeah, for my journey, getting to a point where I was so low, so in the deepest, darkest um, pits of despair, I had uh, a few extra things happen that then were the final tipping point where I had no choice. I had to face that or make the choice like I was wanting to do at the time a few years ago, which was take my life, um, you know, and I hadn't up to that point. I, I'd, I'd had failures, but overarching, there was always, you know, would always end result would be success, so to speak, you know, hitting all the um, objectives and, and goals that I wanted, that I'd set out for myself in my military career, hitting the objectives and goals I'd set out for myself in the paramedic career. But yeah, bit by bit, the negatives were lumping more and more. And I was wearing that. I was holding it without even really realizing. I'd normalize that too you know, mm. and internalize that. And, and that's where I'd gotten to a point of going, well, I'll always be successful if I really put my mind to it. So I'm taking my life. I'm going to make sure I'm successful. So I'd made quite a clear plan of how I was going to do it. Um, and it was a big process to get to that point. But, oh, man, I give thanks to God that it didn't happen that way and I could finally open my eyes up, you know. It took my, my wife at the time to um, reach out to a veteran mate um, and uh, and then him then going, he needs to get this, but it was interesting, you know, looking back now because he didn't share his weaknesses, what was perceived as weaknesses at the time, the struggles he was going through. And that's why he was able to then go reach out to open art or the veteran affairs, like the right. hotline. And so then they called me and it was the first moment where I finally broke down and because um, I couldn't hold it back anymore. I couldn't keep those walls up anymore. Um, but the next morning I'd already planned to take my life and uh, I was going to do that with um, medications that I'd been taking because it was expired stock. It's something that as a paramedic, uh, the role I was doing, we were in charge of drug disposal in that role as well. And, uh, yeah, I ended up taking medications that were expired bit by bit. The original plan was um, my ex-wife now, um, my, fa- my former father-in-law, he was dying, battling cancer himself. And he was going through some pretty bad pains and everything with all the medication he was going on. And so I ended up going, maybe I can then give him, you know, pain relief if needed. And never had to get to that point. Um, and then, uh, yeah, he ended up pa- passing away uh, sooner than what was expected as well. Um, but again, I had that medication sitting there and then it transformed into, well, maybe this is how I'll take my life. And yeah, I know that this can be quite triggering for others to hear, especially. So I'm very cautious of how I speak about this. Yes, but, um, thank you. But yeah, but after the um, that initial phone call where I'd released, I was like, mm-hmm. you know, it felt good, but I was like, this isn't changing my circumstances. So the next morning when my wife took our daughter to daycare, I thought, well, this is it now. I'm ready. I set it all out, drew it all up ready to go I was going to give myself what's called anyway and um and then that's when I I I prayed for the first time in about 11 years by that stage and I went if there is someone out there I'm being a being and I got the call and I was expecting the call 
from that veteran counsellor. But then I knew straight away, I was like, something. It was, I knew it now, I know now it was God going, I'm here. I see you. Answer the phone. And I answered it. And that started my, I like to call it, um, there's another bloke in the veteran community who's a very inspiring man and he coined the term post-traumatic growth journey, the PTG mm. journey. And I love, mm. always love that. And so, yeah, um, that was where my PTG journey started. And I'm very grateful for that. Hello. Um, I know you have Thank to, you. oh, I, I assume I should say, I shouldn't say I know, but I assume you have to go to some fairly dark places to be able to kind of articulate that story. And, and I just want to say thank you. Thank you for doing that because I believe that it'll there, there'll be someone that, that hears that or someone that knows or someone who might be going through something like that and it might just help them, you know, kind of um, along their own post-traumatic growth journey um you know when when all's done so thanks for sharing that vulnerability and thanks for being so raw um of course that's what i'm here for man yeah thank Um, you i'm here to show like yeah you could i know exactly what it's like to get into the the deepest darkest places i like um the visual i like to paint if i'm ever talking to veterans that finally get to that point of talking and then they're on that post-traumatic growth journey is they go yeah man can feel like you're in a slimy pit and you're trying to crawl out and every time you get a little more you think you're getting a bit of traction and then you slide back like you're still going forward man Mm. keep digging deep and Mm. you'll get out the light is there one of my favorite scriptures that i love to always remind myself of um the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it come on man there's no way you can have the smallest bit of light in a, the darkest room. I'm talking like even the darkest I've ever experienced in my life is doing jungle warfare training. And even in the jungles of East Timor, like you can be in the depths of the jungle where the canopy is so thick above you that at nighttime, man, there's always a spin out to put your hand in front of your face and then go, man, you can't see anything. Wow. But as soon as you get the smallest bit of light, there's no one that can hide a light in that sort of darkness, man, because it will shine so brightly. Mm. And that's the visual I like to paint to go. It's like, that's all you need is that little glimmer. And before long, if you keep on going to that light, it'll get brighter and brighter. Mm. Just takes time, man. It takes hard work, but it's worth it because then it, yeah, you get out the other side and um, yeah, some of the, some of the best fruit grows in the deepest valleys. Yeah, and that can be quite dark as well. But a good mate of mine reminds me of that sometimes. You know, but man, that fruit tastes so good when you're on top of the mountain because you've worked so hard, and it might feel like you're going up and down. You're just going through crevices and stuff. But eventually, you get to that top of the peak. Man, you get to look back. It's the best view, and you get to enjoy that delicious fruit that you've collected. Because the Mm. fruit, the analogy is, you're picking up tools to make you stronger. Mentally, it's not just the physical, it's not just the outward, it's the internal. And for me, especially the thing that really linked everything in was to work that spiritual muscle. Man, mm. you know, that's it. Yeah, that's, that's so profound. That, that's so profound. Um, oh, I love that. I absolutely love that. Uh, I'm wondering um, if it's 
if it's okay, can we talk about the post-traumatic growth journey? Um, you know, yeah. from that, from that moment, from that morning, from that phone call, from that, from that God knocking at the door to what happened then? How did you kind of, what, what, I guess, talk, talk through without baiting you too much, talk through what did that look like in terms of picking you up off the canvas to even where you are now and the, and the practices that you have to, you know, ensure that you're at a place where you not only fill your own cup, but then you give back to other vets and whoever else needs it. Man. So that journey. And I said, like, you know, I now know looking back, that was God pulling on me because I'd asked, I'd asked overtly. And that was, that was an overt asking, but it was in my heart. I, I mm. wanted the help. I was crying out for it. Um, but God doesn't force himself in your life. Unlike an infantry soldier where we can kick a door in and then <laughs> make entry, take a space, you know, shout out to all those um, veterans out there that do that have done and do that job. Um, and that's what I loved it. But yeah, he doesn't work like that. And so that then, that was the initial, but classic, like any bloke or woman, anyone that's just motivated in life, you do it in your own strength. So I was like, rightio, that's it. So I dug deep into the tools that I already had in me at that point, which was like the soldiering, the Australian soldiering mentality, you know, like, mm. um, yeah. Yeah, we haven't talked a- on that yet. Like when we <laughs> kind of went eight years and then we're at paramedics, but it's like <laughs> yeah. all the lessons and, um, yeah, the the things that you've taken from that now, as you're saying, sorry, yes, carry yeah. on, carry well, on. Well, up until that point, I'd gotten these amazing tools, but I'd forgotten how to use them because I'd lost who I was, you know, my identity was as a soldier, then my identity was as a paramedic. When all of that started slipping away from me, I was like, who am I? So that's why I went straight into that radio, improvise, adapt, overcome, let's do this. So I started connecting with the right services, like mental health professionals. I started talking more real because I loved my time as a paramedic, but I think overall the, the, um, the culture and my time, there was a, what I could look at back now is it was a changing of the guard. You know, we were starting to transition into tertiary level qualification as opposed to just diploma. Um, yeah. You were really having to lift your game in that, in that sense, clinically and professionally. Um, there was a massive stigma around mental health whilst my exposure to the military. Yes, it was definitely off the mark. Um, you know, but I saw through my, my, career and doing I did four tours in all and each tour you do pre-deployment midway through they'd sometimes check in with you mental health and then post-deployment but um where did you yeah, deploy it, again Carlo um I did my first tour in Timor and then my second tour was in Iraq I did my third tour in Afghanistan slipped in a um, advanced jungle warfare training trip into Brunei there. Uh, that was awesome, working with the Brunei commandos over there and then finished my last tour in what was then called Timor-Leste when they got their, um, uh, uh, yeah, when they uh, gained their, oh, my goodness, I'm lost. Their independence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah thank you. Yeah, that's all right. Um, <laughs> I'd taken away these amazing tools in my career, but, yeah, as I said, I'd started losing my way with how to utilize those tools effectively. And uh, that's where I went into the, well, I'm going to adapt and uh, okay, I've got this great uh, medical qualification. I'll sidestep into nursing 
And I thought maybe that'll be a little more, you know, like you're in a more controlled environment, um, more of a bigger team around you supporting you. Um, but as soon as uni was about to kick off, man, oh, that was not, I just, in my spirit, it wasn't the right the right way to go. I just felt such an uneasiness because I hadn't done any healing. All I was doing was trying to go on to the next thing, reinvent myself. So, yeah, that was when I had them. It felt like a, it was such a tough decision at the time. Um, and I discussed it with my wife and discussed it with my clinicians in my corner, the psychologist and psychiatrist. And they said, yeah, mate, now you're ready to start going the journey of actually healing and addressing this. Um, so that involved me pushing in like into the veteran spaces. So I started getting involved in um, uh, veteran organizations like Buddy Up, Mates for Mates, Legacy, uh, just even getting involved with the RSL. And then I saw the Invictus Games and I watched yes. the Invictus Games and I was like, man, this is inspiring. This is where it's about, what it's about. Um, and so I put in an application with the Warrior Invictus Games program and went from there, uh, started attending. I got an invite to the camps and then attended the camps and they were, you know, they have all the different sports um, in the adaptive sports um, arena. And yeah, I just sort of, I'm here to learn and grow and meet people, connect in with other like-minded individuals that want to help themselves. And everything that they offered, I was like putting my hand up for everything. That's something that I've always done as well. I've always liked to, hey, put your hand up you know yeah say yes to things you don't know what it's where it's going to take you and um yeah bit by bit the camps they whittled the numbers down until they made it down and i got the call um i made the final team um 32 uh, 23 of us um for team australia to deploy at the the warrior games in tampa and florida in 2019 and i was so honored i couldn't believe it i was so humbled and I, just the amazing friendships that I'd made through that journey. So we were all yeah. calling each other and just celebrating. And and then the ones, the best thing was like the ones that didn't make the team, men, everyone, just beautiful support network, you know, because, um, yeah, they were really, had all of us were in there to get on the team. We couldn't all get on there. And um, the genuine support, that's where those people were like messaging on the group apps, that um, message apps that we had. I'm just like so thankful to be supported and loved, you know, um, not just forgotten about because they hadn't made the team, you know. Yeah, they're still part of that brotherhood and part of the community. Exactly. And um, and then uh, so we all got an email on a fr- – it was a Friday, I remember. And then I got a call from the head coach, um, Jeff Stokes, uh, amazing man. Um, he's one of the head coaches for the Brumbies. And um, that's why I was always like, you know, everything he told – told us you, you just lap it up you know because he's got a lot of wisdom in that fella and uh yeah he called me and was they were so impressed with how i'd performed during all the um camps um they left it in my court to make a decision if i wanted to be australia's first representative as being the ultimate champion contender um for australia um and so because of my swimming background um he said it he goes mate it means that you'd actually have to scale your calendar back because you're only allowed to, as the ultimate champion, compete in two events per discipline, but you do every sport on on offer. And, so um, good. Yeah, so I said, okay, look, I don't want to make any rash decisions. Um, can you give me the weekend to think? And he goes, yeah, mate, think about it over the weekend. And talked about it with my wife, and I thought, I don't need someone to tell me that I know how to swim. 
I'm there for the experience and um, yeah, yeah, I don't, I'm not trying to be silly, but of course I wanted to win the medal, but I wasn't there for the medals. I was there for the experience. And so I made the decision to um, give my crack at, give it a crack at ultimate champion. And um, yeah, I'd never, apart from being in school, I'd never shot a bow and arrow before. So I got to do archery, never ridden a race bike in my life. So I got to do cycling. (laughs) Um, Yeah. That was incredible. Um, How much prep time did you have to learn these new sports and these new skills? (laughs) I think from way to go, by the time all the camps had finished, it was about three and a half months in total of full-time training. Wow. When I got over, yeah, when we got over to the States, you realized because they've got a lot of money and time as well. Um, the Americans, they were prepping for like a year to a year and a half. Um, so that's where I was like, rightio, I'm going to have to really <laughs> dig deep and bring the goods here. Um, but again, just the friendships. I'm still friends with those those men and women from America and um, Canada, all the nations. We all follow each other on Instagram, check in from time to time. Yeah. Um, and I finished fifth overall and that was incredible. Yeah. Amazing experience. Unreal. Unreal. Yeah. yeah. It's so oh, powerful. Took, yeah. Got the bonus. Got um, Took two golds out of the pool and the silver on the track with our um, relay team. So that was awesome. Unreal. Yeah. Unreal. And so that um, – you know, part of that story when Andy's saying about um, the post-traumatic growth, like that's all what's come after that for you. That was that coming back, connecting with the vets, the physical output, the camaraderie, just such 100%. a powerful space. Exactly. But tying it back to what I'd said earlier about, like, you know, look, the recovery journey, it's not a straight line. Mm. I'm not trying to insult anyone's intelligence with that, but unless you go through it you wouldn't really think about it right Mm -hmm. yeah and now i know like man it is ups and downs it's peaks and troughs and so that was massive peaks you know but then after it collapsed again you know Mm -hmm. you're going back into norm back into reality who am i what am i doing um it's great like i had all these Injuries in my body because by that stage, after going through um, different medical appointments and then getting assessed by clinicians like exercise physiologists, physiotherapists, and medical doctors, um, they would send me off. I'd I'd normalised living with quite significant pain as well, mm. and um, by the end of it, that's where I was. Uh, I found they found sorry that I had quite extensive spinal damage um, during my service in the military. I'd had. I'd blown my shoulder out, so I had my shoulder fully reconstructed. Same with my ankle. I had my ankle reconstructed. Um, but when they pulled my medical records, that was when um, the delegate, so normal process, takes a few months because you've got to get the medical records cleared through government and because you know, there were there were um, files there under to secret and top secret that we operated under as well. So that took a little extended time. But once they finally released that, my medical files um, showed that I'd actually had a unbeknownst to me, I was involved in a um, gunshot incident in my career. And um, that was just a training accident. But uh, when she read it, because she was a woman in Perth over the phone that was managing my case, she said, oh, you had a GSW, a gunshot wound. And I went, what? Oh, I didn't. And she goes, yeah, you did. It was a training accident. It's all documented here. And so that started the journey of exploring neurological and um Look, fast forward, I ended up getting in 2019 diagnosed with a mild traumatic brain injury, and it's very mild. Um, what it did was it affected parts of my memory center, 
um, and the way that my brain receives pain. And that connected a lot of dots um, because uh, it even got to the point at the end of 2019, after I'd had that assessment, I was in an, involved in a motorcycle accident and I walked away from that bike accident. The guy that hit me, uh, he was off his face on drugs, um, you know, so it got all sorted out properly by the police and that. But, um, yeah, I walked away and I just felt irritable. And for the next few months, I was like, something just doesn't feel right. I just can't get comfortable. And it was my partner who, uh, Talia, she's a paramedic. She was begging me, please go to the hospital. I was like, I'll be fine. And I was in training to try and get to the Invictus Games. And that's when I ended up going, oh, I've got pretty gnarly chest pain. So I ended up going to the hospital. They um, did the battery test, cardiac function, all good. But as a protocol, because it was chest pain, they did an X-ray. And when the doctor came back, he sat on the bed. And because my father was dealing with cancer, I was like, oh, man, have I got cancer now? What's going on? The way he looked in his face. Yeah. Everything okay, doc? And he said, Mr. Novak, we've got to have a serious chat. I don't know how you're even sitting here talking to me because you have rib fractures in your, you've broken your eighth, ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th rib in multiple places. You're, uh, he goes, it's the worst remodeled rib cage I've ever seen. He goes, I quite frankly, don't even know how you're sitting here at the moment. He goes, are you okay? And I said, yeah, just feeling a little bit heaviness on the chest. <laughs> a little bit, how it hurts to breathe a little bit, I guess, but just feels uncomfortable. So that's oh. where... Going through the battery tests with um, a neurospecialist, it all came down to the final diagnosis of that mild traumatic brain injury. Wow. Um, yeah. But um, going on CB, uh, I'm on CBD medications prescribed by a doctor out of Brisbane. Um, he's an amazing doctor. I'm giving him a plug, Dr. John Tay. Um, that did a lot of transformation in me, you know. That helped me to get off all the opiates because – I had to then go on a heap of opiate medications and everything as well. Um, oh, and that was a journey and a half to get off that stuff as well. Far mm. out. Yeah, that was tough. Um, wow. But yeah, it all, all of this stuff when we, I know we've taken the long path, but. No, this, that's the, great. The I PT, love the long the, path. <laughs> the PTG journey, you know, took me ups and downs here. But as like, I kept on getting to a point where I would be like, well, what next? I'd keep getting to a point of feeling this emptiness like just something was missing i could feel it and i could feel like i was going in the right direction but it was always just something just off something not right and it wasn't until i was really starting to feel the depression and everything kicking back again um and that my father he, he was the last person i would have expected but i was i ended up crying on the phone because I'd been learning how to, um, you know, get more in touch with my emotions and, you know, and uh, my dad was like, I said, I don't know who I am. I don't know what is going on. I don't know what to do. And he said, you don't know what to do. In German following, he's like, you're Carlo F. And Novak, go to church. <laughs> and I went, go to church? Yeah, okay. Well, I've done everything else and nothing changing. Just feels like it's just in, it felt like it was just um, the cycle was getting bigger. So I wasn't going into the bad places as often anymore, mm. but it would keep on circling back to it. And I went, yeah, okay. I've got nothing to lose. So yeah, I just Googled um, Catholic churches, Hobart. 
And um, the first number that came up, I just rung that, and that was Father Terry. He works out of the um, uh, parish in Richmond. Beautiful place if you haven't been to Tasmania, by the way. And, uh, man, I said, I'm in a dark place. I'm in a pretty bad way here. Um, and he goes, where are you? And I said, I'm out, um, about 25 minutes away from Richmond. He goes, can you come in? I said, yeah. So I drove out. That man gave me three and a half hours of his time that afternoon. And, uh, and that was my first ever confessional in my life. And, man, he, he sat there and what was the chances too? He was actually a, um, a uh, priest in the military as well. Oh, wow. So we had a very, very shared common ground there. And it was just such a big release because it was crazy. But talking about faith and God, you know, these are concepts that I hadn't been discussing in any of my psychological sessions. It was all about giving me extra tools, which were great. They were helping to, you know, help me gr- doing grounding work. Um, we were doing like um, EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, rapid eye yeah. movement training. You know, these were great tools. Um, but as I said, I kept on feeling that that part, that something was missing. And so, yeah, that kicked off the journey of the faith, the spiritual journey. And um, I started making it a habit of going to church every Sunday. And um, it gave me the familiarity of what I'd grown up in. But the thing that I kept on noticing was, I was like, man, this is, the Bible is really speaking hope, you know? And yeah, fast forward, um, I met my partner, uh, Talia, and uh, she's a Christian, she's Christian, you know, and um, she'd been coming to church with me a few times. And she said, you've been to my church. Um, I've been to your church a few times. Do you want to come to the church that I go to? And I was like, straight up like, oh, yeah, was it going to be throwing your hands in the air and all this sort of <laughs> I was pretty, I was pretty overtly cynical about it. And she said, oh, I think you'll like it. It's just a beautiful community, you know, people getting together and, um, yeah, listening to people, um, you know, the Bible being preached. And, uh, man, that was incredible to walk into those doors. I go to C3 Church in Hobart here. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the first people that I ran into, he beelined it to me, actually, like, uh, um, his name is Sean, uh, Pastor Sean. Now I know, but um, he noticed the remembrance bracelet that us boys wear for one of the boys that we lost um, on his tour in Afghan, uh, Scotty Palmer. And because uh, uh, Sean, now I know, I have found out he'd done some time over in the Middle East working as a paramedic. And wow. uh, yeah, and he was like, "Sorry to, sorry for the loss, brother." And I said, "Oh, did you serve?" And then that was it. We just connected in, chatting. And he told me about his time working in the Middle East and especially alongside uh, military personnel in his paramedic role. And then he was like, oh, I've got to get going. And I was like, oh, okay, man, it was lovely meeting. And he goes, yeah, sorry, mate, I've got to get in there. And I was like, okay, cool. And so we went in and it was him preaching. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just completely captivated, you know, the words, everything that was being spoken and – so I started going to that church regularly and they ended up giving out Bibles and this was just prior to COVID lockdown. And um, yeah, before that, just before that happened, I, I had this pulling in my heart where they said, has anyone welcomed Jesus into their life? You know, because um, it was talking about uh, one of the scriptures was talking about Jesus's walk and the things that he had done. And oh, I was, I was standing there praying. 
And it was all of a sudden when I opened my eyes, it's like I, I was at the front of the, of the service when they asked, they said, if anyone wants to come up and receive prayer. Yeah, it was like that. It was, I didn't even have a choice because the prayer I was praying at the time was like, if I'm supposed to be up there, then you will guide me up there. I don't even remember walking up there. That's how, yeah, it was out of this world. And then, um, yeah, in that moment, I, they said, do you know Jesus? And I said, no, I I think I do. They said, do you want us to pray? And so I had this team of people praying for me and it was just this eruption in me and in my, in my very innermost being, like I can't describe it. And yeah, it was the missing piece. Mm. Yeah, that was as simple as that, the best way to describe it. Then just prior to COVID, they handed out these Bibles, and I'd never read a Bible in my life, going to church, growing up and everything. Then sitting in COVID and reading the Bible, by the fourth day, I can't even explain it. All I know is I just know it's the works of God, and that's why there's scripture that says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it was the journey for me to then start um, reading the Bible and then, yeah, having the imp- like God's input versus my own input and all the negative experiences that I'd realized now were starting to override all of the good things mm. that I'd had. Mm. Yeah. And I found it always fa- fascinating actually because um, I had a psychologist that said like you can be given nine of the most amazing things in life if you have one like sentinel event that's a negative, that can psychologically override those nine things and you're left with that one thing overriding all of the rest. Mm-hmm. But I totally get it now. Mm. And that's, yeah. Wow. <laughs> no, I'm so, it's just beautiful to hear. It's just, I'm so grateful. Andy, oh. you're, you're speechless. Yeah. I, I look like I'm frozen, but I promise you I'm not. I'm just sort of soaking <laughs> it in and, and, um, you know, I, there's no heavy lifting needed in this conversation in order to take it to where it needs to go. And no, but more just sitting back, kind of trying to provide a little bit of space for you just to go where you need to go. But it, it's it's been real beautiful and a real honour um, to think this is the to think this is your story and so much richness there. Um, to think this is the first time you've done it on a podcast. It's it's our absolute pleasure to you know, sort of host that, um, facilitating if you like, in, in terms of you delivering that, because it, it's truly just why we do this, um, is, is for moments like this. So we're really, really grateful for it. Um, really, really grateful for, it. I know you got your hands full now, you got sickness kind of all through the house and, um, <laughs> and, uh, some cold and flu there just to kind of help you get through. So thank you, Carlo. Thank you so much. No, thank you, Andy. Thank you. Sorry if I've rambled a little bit, guys. Yeah, you just, have um, not at all. You have not at all. <laughs> I no, I promise you, you have not rambled. Um, it's it's just so beautiful, and I, I guess, what um, is there anything you want to add from like, what ad, what advice or what learnings or um, what, specifically when it comes, I think, to mental health? Is there anything extra you want to? Share all your thoughts there. With mental health, you you feel like you're out of control when you're in the real deep, dark places. But that's the thing, you're not. It's a fallacy that you can start believing that lie, that internal dialogue. You can start really mm. believing it. I've been there. I know. 
but you can take captive of every thought and everything that it's it's equal input equal output right so you know for me it was getting to that point of reassessing my life everything got stripped back from me whether i wanted it or not i had no choice but mm. the the identity crisis that i kept on facing at all those junctures now i know you can strip the layers back and i'm not a paramedic anymore i'm not a soldier anymore i'm even if you stripped away from me business owner or family man i know i'm a son of god you know and god is good if you read the bible and see what jesus did man we always want someone to look to to inspire us yeah to follow i tell you what if you read about what jesus did he showed in action in human flesh what is possible and it, when it comes from love kindness that was another thing too you know your view on love if you're unsure read the bible it'll tell you love is patient love is kind mm. it's not self-seeking it's not it's not about boasting it's humble it's about putting others before yourself but you're valuable too you are you know the most valuable thing and uh it's but you make that active choice you've got to ha- you, you make that active choice to have a relationship with god and in turn you're having that relationship with yourself yeah, yeah. Yes. and i'm not sitting i'm not going to sit here and go oh it's all easy my life if anything, if it's been facing more trials, but it feels like it's too heavy to lift. Mm. I know where I can leave it. I can leave it. I can leave it at the foot of the cross for the sacrifice that, that Jesus made and know that's it. And it will, it works every time to then lift that weight off, you know? Mm. And again, you're learning more and more than what you can control, what you can lift. You're growing and you can lift more the things that you get to a point you can't. There's something bigger than you out there that can lift it for you. And, yeah, uh, one of my favorite sayings, as iron sharpens iron, so too one person sharpens another. Man, think about the people that vibe attracts your tribe. I'm not trying to say these cliched throwaway lines. It is true. true, yes. If, If you've got those right people around you that are keeping you sharp and in turn you're sharpening them, oh, my goodness, you set the world on fire in the best way, man. And, um, you know, people that uplift, motivate, inspire you, you will do the same because you don't want to be the one that's left behind. Right. Yeah. And yeah. So when you've got that, all of that, all of that, those things connected, that's where you can climb out of that slimy pit, as I described earlier. And, and before long, you're going to be standing there and it's a distant memory. Yeah. Yeah, you sure will. Oh, Carlo, that's so that's so so good. I think I used the word profound before. I've kind of run out of superlatives, but you know, <laughs> you just sort of hit the hit the nail on the head. It it seems like we just have really kind of one final question today uh, for you, and and it seems like I, I think from the outside looking in, if people would describe you, they would describe you, you know, certainly from the air or so that we've been chatting as kind and generous and. And and one question I have for you is like, what is the kindest thing that someone's done for you? Oh man, I would have to say, like, like receiving prayer, like receiving prayer, and from people that don't know you, but you can tell it's just genuine. It's just the most beautiful thing. I could go on about this actually, because like even um, yeah, receiving assistance from Legacy when I was homeless at a, at a point. 
um, you know, on my tours, going into a, a township and, you know, it's, oh, you're, you're getting made a meal by people that can barely feed themselves, but they're so thankful for your presence there. That sort of kindness, man, those are the layers that I really tap into these days to remind myself of the kindness and the generosity and the goodness out there, even in the midst of horrible evils that could be surrounding them. You know, the area in Afghanistan at the time when I was there, that was classed as the most dangerous place in the world. The Taliban had such a heavy foothold and um, the, the townspeople, they lived in fear. But, man, again, their level of gratitude for us being there and it, they were putting themselves at risk by even showing us that they were accommodating us, you know, that, yeah, that was just a phenomenal level of kindness just to know the back end part of that, the risk that they were taking, you know? Yeah. But yeah, but, for, but as I said, most recently it's always been receiving prayer. When we lost out my father, you know, we, yeah, it was such a beautiful time to celebrate my dad's life. But man, you hurt, you hurt when you lose your loved ones. And then to have a community around you, gathering around you, coming around, making meals for you and your family. <laughs> oh, man, talk about being humbled, you know, and feeling loved. Yeah. Beautiful. I think that, um, mm. yeah, that it's sums beautiful. it up beautifully and, and perfectly. And Carlo, thank you so much for for joining us today. I think I've thanked you about 17 times throughout this podcast. But, um, <laughs> Man, same deal yeah. though. So I'm We've very loved it. you guys. Thank you. Yeah, really, really loved it. What you guys really are doing in it. this space, like it's awesome talking to these amazing human beings and yeah, again, you're spreading that light and good times, goodness in the world, you guys. Well done. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, my friend. We appreciate yeah. it. Thank Likewise, you so, so much. Thanks for joining us on the Lead with Courage podcast. We illuminate leadership and it's our mission to inspire and grow the leaders of today to create a better tomorrow. We hope and trust that this episode has given you some insights and joy to empower you to live your biggest, best life. If you did enjoy the episode, we'd be so grateful for you to rate and share wherever you listen to this podcast. And until next time, go and lead with courage. Illuminate Leadership is not a licensed mental health service or a substitute for professional mental health advice, treatment or assessment. Any conversation in this podcast is general in nature and if you're struggling, please see a healthcare professional or call Lifeline on 131114.